0: your Bibles to the book of Galatians chapter 6, Galatians chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible or I'm um, not super familiar with how the Bible works, there's a Bible under the chair in front of you, and you will find our reading today beginning on page 975 of the church Bible, page 975. The chapter numbers are those big numbers, and the verse numbers are the little numbers. So, we'll be picking up reading in verse 6 of Galatians 6, and so I'm going to go ahead and read the passage and pray for the Lord's help on our time together, and then we'll dig right in. In total, it should be around 45 minutes or so. Galatians chapter 6, beginning at verse 6, this is the word of the Lord. Let the one who is taught the word Share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit. Whom have I in heaven but You? You are the joy and the treasure of our hearts. Will You come by Your Holy Spirit here now? Give us eyes to see the beauties of Jesus as we've never seen Him before. Give us ears to hear Your Word, and give us grace so that we would see our need for Jesus and turn and trust Him. Father, for the barriers of unbelief that reside in our heart, tear them down brick by brick and allow us to receive the implanted Word by Your Holy Spirit to the praise of the glory of the grace of God. Amen." Jesus Christ was a master storyteller. A few days before He went to the cross, He told a story about a rich man who went on a journey, and He left three of His servants in charge of His wealth while He was away. He proportioned to each servant according to their ability. To one servant, he gave management of a hundred years' wages, so in our day it would be something like three million dollars. To another servant, he gave management over 40 years' wages, so something like a million dollars. To the third servant, he gave management of half a million dollars, and then he went on his journey. The servant who received the three million dollars worked hard with that money, buying and selling, and he earned three million dollars more for his master. The servant who had received a million dollars did the same, working hard, investing, and he doubled his master's resources. The one who received the half million dollars feared the master, and he dug a hole. And he buried his master's money. When the master returned from his journey, he settled his accounts with his servants. To the servant who had earned $3 million addition, he said, "'Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master.'" And to the second servant, who also had doubled his master's resources, he said the same thing. He gave him management of more, told him to enter his joy. The third servant dug up his master's investment and returned it to him. I knew you were a difficult man, he said, so I hid your money. The master was furious. You wicked and lazy servant, the master replied. You could have at least put it in the bank where I would have received some interest. So, the master took the money from him and gave it to another and cast that worthless servant out into outer darkness where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. The meaning of this parable is fairly clear, that God has entrusted to each person resources, We're meant to use those resources which God has given us to advance God's cause. We're not meant, as D.A. Carson put it, to just hang in there and wait for the end. A failure to invest the resources God has given us to God's purposes shows that we don't actually respect our Master. We don't love our Master, and indeed we aren't even servants of our master at all. The last servant in Jesus' parable is not condemned for his misuse of his master's gift. He's condemned for his non-use of his master's gift. He didn't respect his master. He was selfish and lazy. He spent his time while his master was away doing whatever he wanted entirely unconcerned about the interests of his master. And I wonder if Paul had this parable in mind when he wrote these closing words to the church at Galatia. You reap what you sow. If you spend your life sowing to yourself, you will lose yourself. This whole letter has been written to address the central problem of humans throughout all time, pride, specifically the sinful desire in each of us for self-glory, self-exaltation, self-salvation. And when we spend our lives sowing to our flesh, investing in self-glory, We lose everything, and to Paul's point here, the ministry of God's Word is impeded. When we spend our resources on self-glory, the ministry of God's Word is starved of resources, and thus God's people don't hear or see the glories of Christ, and thus they are unmoved and unmotivated to give themselves to the mission of Christ in the world. And thus, the poor are unhelped, and the unreached remain unreached. But the gospel changes all that. The good news of Jesus Christ prevents God's people from wasting their lives on worthless self-indulgence. The cross of Jesus Christ shows that you were made for more than feeding your physical appetites. You were made to spend this life, the only life you get, to proclaim the excellencies of Christ until Christ is all. So, this message is for anyone who at any time has wondered, what's the point? Day in, day out, does any of this matter? This message is for anyone who is, the grass is always greener on the other side type. You're going to see by the Spirit's help that when you stop focusing on yourself and begin focusing on Christ, everything matters. This is the other side with the greener grass. And that if you will open your eyes, The eyes of faith, you will see, it's far better on this side than you ever imagined. Big idea this morning is this don't waste your life, but invest in the spirit-driven, Christ exalting ministry of God's word. Don't waste your life. Invest your life in the spirit driven, Christ-exalting ministry of God's Word. Three insights drawn from this passage. The first is in verses 6 and 7, you reap what you sow. Let's read that again. Verse 6, "'Let the one who is taught the Word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows that will He also reap." Some English translations put verse 6 in a separate paragraph from verses 7 to 10, because at first glance, verse 6 does seem unrelated. It's almost as if Paul is like, oh shoot, I said all this stuff, I forgot to tell them to pay their pastors. So, he just kind of throws that in there at the last minute. But the ESV translation puts verses 6 and 10 in one paragraph, and I think that's right. I think verses 6 to 10 is one unit of thought. In verse 6, there are those who teach and there are those who are taught. And both of these two people share the same goal, the ongoing ministry of God's Word among His people, that God's people would grow in their knowledge of Him, be built up in Him, and share Him with others. Isn't that the point of the ministry of the Word? that we would grow in our knowledge of Him, be built up in Him, and share Him with others. The one who is taught the Word actually means the one who is catechized, and catechism is a word that has fallen out of favor in most evangelical churches. Isn't catechism what the Catholics do? Catechism isn't a Catholic thing. Catechism is a Christian thing. Christian churches have catechized people since the resurrection. It's simply teaching a body of Christian doctrine to someone else. It's part of making disciples. After all, what did Jesus tell us to do in Matthew 28? Go, make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then what? Teach them all that I've commanded you. That teaching, that's catechism. So, there are those who teach, and there are those who are taught, and they both work together for the same goal. The word share in verse 6 is not payment for a job well done. It is a partnership in a work being shared. The word is related to the idea of fellowship. It's related to the idea of participation. And Jesus taught that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, those who taught the Bible should make material provision for those who teach the Bible. And so, here's what Paul is saying. Everyone who has been united to Christ shares a common goal to make the excellencies of Christ known in the earth through the proclamation of His Word. That's not the preacher's job. That's our job. It's everyone's job. The preacher's job is to study the Bible, teach the church so the church will know God, be encouraged by God, be equipped by God to do the work of the ministry of God, to make Christ known. So, in essence, teachers teach teachers to teach teachers to teach teachers. You follow? Teachers teach teachers to teach teachers so they'll teach teachers. That's what making disciples is. That's the ministry of the Word. So, you and I work hard. We earn wages. We live below our means. We hone our talents and abilities, not so that we can spend our resources on ourselves, so that we can serve the advance of the gospel to God's global glory. Cornerstone, your money and your talents, they aren't for you. They're a means to an end. And if you make yourself and your comfort an end, you will lose both. If you make yourself and your comfort, a means to an end, you will lose both. Yourself and your comfort. God is not mocked. He knows what resources He's entrusted to you. So, don't kid yourself. You're never going to fly under the radar. You reap what you sow. The third servant in Jesus' parable hid his treasure, and he was found out, And so, dear fellow Christian, your God has entrusted you with resources, and if you bury those God-given resources under the dirt of self-glory, you will lose both your life and your resources. And I would spare you of that if I could. I'm afraid that many of us still think about sin… Mostly as something we do. But I have found in my own life, I bring far more dishonor on my Savior by the things I don't do than in the things I do. The blessings of God are meant to flow through you, back to God as you spend them on others. And our God, in His infinite goodness, has designed our lives such that when we do, for His sake, for His glory, helping others, the things we do redound to His glory, and then to our Heavenly reward. Now, we we reformed types, we love to talk about grace alone and faith alone and Christ alone to the glory of God alone. And we talk about the judgment of God on sin. And that's good. We should talk about that. But it seems to me that we're awfully shy in talking about heavenly rewards. Jesus had no problem talking about heavenly rewards. Neither did Paul. Neither did Peter. Neither did John. Neither did James. So, we shouldn't be either. Jesus said in Luke 12, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. In the parable that we opened with, What did the master say to his servants? Enter into my joy. So who am I to withhold pleasure from my good father who rewards a worm like me for simply doing what he called me to do? This life I ruined and he redeemed for his glory. Don't waste your life. Give what you have, however much you have, on the ministry of God's Word in and among His people here. Give what you have, however much you have, on the ministry of God's Word among people who have not yet been reached. I have another concern, which is that you would hear me saying this is about Dollars and cents. But you have to understand, God doesn't need your money. He paves his streets with gold. Seems he's doing okay. This is never about dollars and cents. Jesus taught us this is about the heart. For where your treasure is, there your Heart will be also. So this is not dollars and cents. God wants your heart. Second insight is in verses 8 and 9. If we sow to the flesh, we'll reap corruption. But if we sow to the Spirit, we will reap eternal life. Have a look at verse 8 and 9 again. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So, what does Paul mean by sowing to the flesh? Well, you'll have to think back to a number of things that we've talked about in the book of Galatians. This whole book has been a warning against being a self-savior, doing things your own way, in your own strength, in order to achieve your own glory. And we've seen in this book that placing yourself at the center of your life leads to all sorts of distortions. Misusing of others leads to conceit, arrogance, and division. That's not how God made us to operate. And whatever we, you and I, give to building our own name, to building our own reputation, it won't survive the fires of God's judgment. No matter what you do, actually it doesn't matter that much what you do, it matters a lot why you do what you do. And God sees your heart, discerns your heart, and anything you do with the goal of building yourself up will not survive. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption. That word, it means total destruction. You may want to re-familiarize yourself with the works of the flesh back in chapter 5 verse 19 to 21. Sowing to the flesh, making sexual fulfillment central in your life, will ruin sex in your life. It will destroy others. Making yourself central in your relationships will ruin your relationships. Making your appetite central in your life will ruin your life. It's not how you were meant to work. You're not meant to be the center of your own orbit. So, if you're, if you're a guest with us and you're not a Christian, I want you to know I'm really glad you're here. We have prayed that you would be here. I also want you to know, you don't ever have to become a Christian in order to be welcomed in this church. You don't have to listen to anything I say or believe anything I say in order to be welcomed here. But I have to also tell you that verse 8 is true of you whether you believe it or not. Your Creator has entrusted you with a mind and will and emotions and talents and treasures, all of which were meant to draw you to His Son. And so long as you give yourself to spending those things on yourself, you will reap destruction. Friend, when you seek your own glory, you will reap your own destruction. Look to Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for sinners like you. Confess your sins, throw yourself upon His mercy, and accept the free offer of His grace and forgiveness, and by God's power, you'll be granted eternal life. You'll be enabled to spend this life, the only one you get, on something meaningful. You were made for more than a full belly and a comfortable armchair. Paul promises here that if you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life. So, what does it mean to sow to the Spirit? That's another thing that we've seen throughout this letter. God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, works to make Jesus central in all things. That's the Spirit's job. Jesus told us the Holy Spirit was given to point people to Jesus. John 16, 14, He will glorify Me, for He will take what is of Mine and declare it to you. That's what the Spirit is all about. So, to sow to the Spirit means to invest yourself, invest your resources in the purposes of the Spirit of God, namely glorifying Jesus by the declaration of what is true of Jesus. He will take what is true of Me and declare it to you. You see, that brings us back to the ministry of the Word, doesn't it? Exalt Jesus by telling people about Him. Every Christian is called to lift Jesus high so that all would see and delight in Him. Or to use words familiar to us all, to to proclaim the excellencies of Christ until Christ is all. So, that's what we do. The Bible is God's self-revelation, so we take the Bible and we say, see Him! see." He's infinitely more satisfying than sexual fulfillment. He's infinitely more glorious than human admiration. He's infinitely more gratifying than any business success. That's the ministry of the word. And that's our shared ministry. That's why we exist in Piqua, Ohio. That's why we pay for a place to gather on the Lord's Day and scoot close to one another so others can fill in. We want to hear His excellencies. We want to rejoice in His excellencies. We want to share His excellencies with others. It's the only reason you're alive. I'm not overstating that. It's the only reason you're alive. It's the only reason God has not taken you home to glory. It's so that Christ would be known and cherished by people in the way that He is known and cherished by you. It's why you're alive. To this, we give our time and our talents and our treasures to this. Having nicer things, it's whatever. Everyone wants nicer things. That's so vanilla. I'm after the joy that comes from sharing Christ, from sending church plants into gospel deserts around us, sending missionaries to unreached peoples in the world. A new car smell lasts for what, three months? But a new church smell redounds to God's glory forever. To that, invest your life. The only one you get. If you're going to spend these resources on something, spend it on that. The Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 6 to be generous, to lay up treasures in heaven Something that Paul called taking hold of that which is truly life. Which means anything else that you're giving yourself to, your resources, is taking hold of something that isn't life. It will slip through your fingers on the last day and it'll be lost. I'm yet to find one reason why we shouldn't spend our life, what's left of this life, on the spread of God's gospel in the world. I can't think, I can't find anything more worthwhile than that. I mean, you search the Scriptures, you dig through the catacombs of human reasoning, and if you find something, you better tell me, but I can't find anything better and seeing Christ exalted among those who've never heard Him. In my study of this passage this week, I could find only one other place in the Bible where sowing and reaping and eternal life are linked, and it was in John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, Jesus is doing an outreach ministry to Samaritans, these kind of half-breed Jews that were despised by the Jews. And the disciples wanted to make sure that doing ministry, Jesus was taking care of Himself, He was eating well, and so they went and got food, and they asked Him if He wanted any food, and He said, "'My food is to do the will of Him who sent Me, and to accomplish His work.'" And then He tells them, "'Lift up your eyes, the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life.'" So that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. The Lord gave his life, accomplishing his Father's will, saving sinners to the glory of God. And that work was more important to him than food. Or, more to the point, food was simply a means to that end. So we eat as a means to that end. We eat to enjoy God's kind provision. It's it's good to eat good food and to enjoy the gift of good food that God gave to you in your taste buds, knowing that you would taste things that taste good and you would rejoice in that thing in Him. Eating good food for the sake of food is idolatry. But eating good food for the sake of worshiping the provider of that food, that is glorious. So, food is meant for you to worship the provider of food, and it is also meant to give you energy to serve God's global mission, making much of Jesus in all that we do. It's also the reason you show up to work early and give 100% on your shift. It's why you live below your means. It's why you keep your homes tidy so that you can welcome people in and share the excellencies of Christ with those who are in the Lord and those who are outside of the Lord. Cleaning your house is a means to an end. It's never an end. If you're making cleaning the house an end, you're going to go nuts because it never stays clean. It's a means to an end so that you can be welcoming to others. This is your glorious purpose. And so, let us not grow weary in doing good. In God's wisdom, word ministry—the ministry of sharing Christ with others—it's slow ministry. Every parent should be saying, "Amen." It's slow ministry. Applying the gospel to your young kids is a lifetime of work. It's daily correction with the gospel. church discipleship is not much different. You put yourself out there, you invest yourself in others, and sometimes you just don't see any fruit. I remember some years ago, I had the privilege of teaching an adult Sunday school class, or it was an adult education class on Wednesday nights. And I'm working a full-time job, and I got four kids, and I'm going to school and I'm, in, I'm trying my best. I'm investing 10, 15 hours in these, these messages. And then I show up early on Wednesday, and three people come. And I'm so frustrated by that. And then the Lord corrects me. God the Son died for those three souls. And God spent those 10 hours, those 10 or 15 hours of my life as His servant, because he wanted those three souls to hear his word that night. Not the other 80 who didn't show up, the three who did. Who do I think I am to despise the three who the Lord himself died to save? I can be so arrogant sometimes. Many in this room have spent long hours in prayer, laboring over hard conversations, wondering if there's ever going to be any fruit. And no doubt you've wondered, wouldn't it just be easier to stay to myself, to go camping on the weekends? And I'll just answer that question for you. Yes, you would improve this life if you stopped caring. But you would also waste this life and the gifts that God has given you to build someone else in the Lord. The Lord is kind to give us seasons of encouragement in ministry. Maybe you pray for a friend to come to faith and then they repent and believe. Maybe a brother's heart is softened by a rebuke and repent. But the Lord is also kind to give us seasons of discouragement in order to humble us and to cause us to rely on Him. It's a protection. You, you see, it's a protection so that we don't start thinking we're ourselves as something when we're not. If you feel discouraged because you're not seeing fruit in your ministry, here's my counsel to you. Just keep sowing. Keep planting seeds. and. You grab tight onto the Spirit's promise in verse 9. In due season, we will reap if we do not give up. That's what you got to do. Keep sowing and don't quit. Take that appointment, answer that call, and trust the results Are in the Lord's hands. Your job is to simply be faithful and sow the seed. I've told you before, my mom used to have a sign in her office. Some of you have cat signs, she had a better one. The sign read, Don't measure the day by the harvest, but by the seeds planted. I think that's right. That brings us to our last insight in verse 10, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So, you have one life with limited resources, and you could spend that one life and those limited resources on yourself, but then you would lose both. Or you could spend that one life and those limited resources on building someone else up in the Lord. As you have opportunity, do good to everyone. I don't know about you, but I'm really thankful for that phrase, as you have opportunity. Because there are plenty of times when I'm looking out across the world, even across our church, and I'm thinking, it's too much. It's way too much. 800,000 Americans were murdered in the womb last year. Three billion people have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. Marriages are struggling. Parents are overwhelmed. People feel left out. Others are completely uninvolved. There's lots to be done. as you have opportunity do good begin praying and asking the lord lord give me opportunity or open my eyes to the ones that are in front of me now and be faithful in those can't do everything you can do something proverbs 3:27 do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it or jesus in luke 6:35 he says do good and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. I can't wait to do Luke. There's all It's filled with those kinds of things. Do good, lend, expecting nothing in return, even to the ungrateful." How many you have been like, oh, I've been down that road, son, that boy, he is not grateful for what I do to him. Not doing it again. And Jesus is like, that's fine. You're just nothing like God. You want to be a son of the Most High? God gives good gifts to ungrateful people. Point is, someone, it seems to me that the whole Bible expects God's people to care more for the good being done to others than for the good being done to them. So that person at work, the Lord keeps bringing to your heart, take him out to lunch and share your testimony with him. You can continue to complain about your neighbor who can't seem to mow his grass but once a month, or you can mow it for him. Do good to everyone. Notice, Paul makes a special provision for those in the church especially those who are of the household of faith. The Apostle John said the very same thing. He said, 1 John 3, 17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how can the love of God even be in him? So, why is there a special provision for those in the church than for those outside the church? By the way, this is, Paul assumes that we would know who's in the church and who's not in the church. So, you're looking like, where's membership in the church? There's one. Paul assumes that we would do extra special things for one another in the church. Why? Because we're after the same thing. We're all working for the same goal. And your ability to help your brother is an ability to cause your brother to be able to do the thing that God has created him to do namely, to exalt Jesus to the glory of God. And so you might be wondering so I have to do good to everyone. And I have to do special good to those in the church. What good? What am I left with? Like, I got nothing left. I hear you. Remember Jesus promised in Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You will have, to use Paul's words, all sufficiency in all things at all times. The Father knows what you need. And here's the point. This is is the conclusion. That God the Son left the comforts of heaven and gave His whole life to preaching the Word. He died. He was raised on the third day to grant eternal life to hell-deserving sinners like us. We are here today because of what He did for us. He saved us. And He hasn't taken us home yet, which can only mean one thing. There's a reason we're still alive. There's good that needs done by you. Ministry of the Word must continue. There's work that needs done, and there's good that needs doing. So my encouragement to you today is to spend this life, it's the only one you get, there's no mulligans, there's no, no do-overs, you only get one life with limited resources. Invest those resources which God gave you to God's glory. Invest your time and your talents and your treasures in the advance of the gospel and people in this church and the ministry of the Word through this church. Follow Jesus and help someone else follow Him. We exist to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ in Piqua, in Miami County, and to the ends of the earth, until Christ is all and in all. And every member of this church takes part in that purpose. It is your glorious privilege. And so, I'm just telling you to pursue your Father's pleasure. Pursue your Master's joy by investing your gifts in the advance of His gospel, and it will come with a heavenly reward. We'll give Jesus the final word. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray. Father, every good gift and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from you, the Father of lights whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You are our shepherd, we shall not want. You make us to lie down in green pastures, you lead us beside the still waters, you restore our weary souls, you lead us in the path of righteousness for your namesake though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, convinced in our pride that if it is to be, it's up to me, Lord, convict our unbelieving hearts. Will you forgive us? Will you teach us to trust you and to fear no evil? Because you're with us. Because we've been united to Christ. Because in him we are safe and satisfied. Your rod and your staff, which you use to correct and discipline, which you use to guide our our comforts. You've shown us today that we've wasted so much of our lives on self-glory and self-indulgence. Thank you for being honest about who we are and what we are. And though we are surrounded by enemies, doubt and fear and pride, You are not threatened. You prepare a table there in the presence of our enemies. You anoint our heads with oil. You revive our drooping heads. We're so happy in you. Our cup overflows, joy spilling out to others. Your goodness and your mercy, they go wherever we go. Give us grace, dear Lord to honor you with our lives until we finally come home and dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, having confessed those sins, this is your assurance of pardon For Romans chapter 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus.